Ripple Effect is our series, Faith, Hope, Love, and Joy. I thought I'd change it up. Well, it rolls off the tongue, faith, hope, love, and joy, but we're changing up the hope and the love part so that we can put love on Mother's Day. Is that a shameless appeal to moms? Absolutely. The uh, center of our sermon, of course, is always the text, and the text today is from Ruth. Old Testament, great story. Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi. But let me, let me remind you that Ruth is actually the great-grandmother of King David. And so you, you first have to understand a little bit of context before I read to you the passage. That the reason why Naomi, who was an Israelite, met Ruth, a Moabite, in the first place is that there was a great famine in Israel. And so Ruth left with her husband and her two sons and traveled to Moab. And there, Ruth married one of Naomi's sons. And because of the famine, Naomi's husband and two sons ended up dying. And so here is is a woman, Ruth, left in this world without a husband, but with a mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi said, no longer call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. Today we're going to be looking at, at the way that Ruth and her unconditional commitment demonstrates a love that never fails. From the end of the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, starting with verse 13. Hear God's word this morning. So Boaz, and Boaz is, is the, the man that Ruth ends up marrying when they move back to Israel. So Boaz took Ruth, and as she... And and she became his wife. And he went to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you as a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let's pray together. Father, may now the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Heard a story about a woman who was moving into a new house and she went up into the attic and found a shotgun that had been left there. 
And she, she called her mom and said, what should I do with it? I'm afraid to just throw it away and I don't want to leave it there. I don't know what to do with it. And she said, well, you should, you should take, it to the police station, take it to the police station and just drop it off there, leave it with them there. And the woman was about to hang up with her mom and her mom said, oh yeah, by the way, call first. Thank you, moms, for all your great advice over the years. Thank you for all your advice and counsel, whether we uh, receive it or not. Moms represent whether your mom was perfect or not. Well, no mom is perfect. Moms represent a certain kind of love. Now, you may argue with me. If you argue with me about your mom, your mom being perfect, fantastic. But moms represent a certain kind of love, an unconditional kind. And it's the unique kind of love to which the whole church is being called. And it's the kind of love that, as we've been talking about this this year periodically, this great divide in our country really needs. It's the kind of love that we are called as a church, as a community of faith, to demonstrate in the ways that we live and move and have our being. What kind of love never fails? Well, it's the kind that bears all things, believes all things, and endures all things. At the end of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, at the end of of the chapter we call the love chapter, Paul goes through a litany of what love is, but at the end he talks about faith, hope, and love, and he talks about love, the kind of love that never fails. It's the kind that bears all things, believes all things, and endures all things. Let's take a look at Ruth's love, Boaz's love, Naomi's love, the way that we can see it bearing, believing, and hoping. First, love bears all things. So that love is centered on the person and not on their debts or their circumstances. Love bears all things. In a way, we're left here on this earth, even after you make a profession of faith. You ever wonder about that? Why, why after we make a profession of faith, why, do, why, why doesn't God just sort of magically take us away? Well, we're here to learn something. We're here to learn a certain kind of love. And maybe you, you feel some frustration in that, some frustration in the ways that, that even if you are a Christian here this morning, that your relationships still have all these, these, these little bits of mara in them, these little bits of bitterness in them, that God is still teaching you how to love. Well, that's the point. Bearing all, love that bears all things, not, not the circumstances, but pushes past the circumstances. God sometimes uses these circumstances in relationships to filter love so that we're focused on the person and not on their debts or deficits, so that we learn to love in terms of the relationship and not the circumstances. Now, I can immediately hear somebody saying, well, does that mean we're just supposed to to deal with somebody when they're they're bringing the awful circumstances themselves? In other words, what about when the circumstances are of their own making? 
Are we just supposed to overlook that or enable bad behavior? No. Think of a mother's love. Think of the way that a mother disciplines. A mother who really loves her child disciplines her child. Because the relationship is separate from the behavior. And so, of course, the kind of love that bears all things is... You have to understand that it bears all things in order to make the relationship flourish. Love wants the best for the other person. So you think about the golden rule and you think, would I want somebody else to enable me to abuse them? Well, I might want to in the moment, but ultimately would I want to? Would I want someone else to allow me to be manipulative? Well, maybe in the moment. But the golden rule, if you put the shoes on the other feet and you stand there in that place where you're not the person of nobility that you're called to be, of course, of course we're going to call one another out. Of course we're going to draw lines. Of course love doesn't just simply bear all things in a way that allows bad behavior because, because bearing all things Sometimes those circumstances are there so that we can clarify and focus on the person, the relationship, and that on the debt and the deficits. You think about what kind of friend Ruth was. Ruth means friend. Did you know that? Ruth, the word Ruth means friend. And, and you know you've probably experienced this where, or you've heard somebody say it, that, that certain kinds of burdens, debts, and circumstances shows you who your real friends are. Have you ever had that kind of experience? Where you've learned something has gone blahooey in your life. And you've learned who your real friends are. I've seen it over the last few months in, in, in families' lives in Thomasville where something has gone wrong. And they've said to me, I've really seen my true friends emerge. That's what's happening with Ruth. Ruth is, is, is faced with all of these horrible circumstances, and he, she's looking at, at Naomi's circumstances. And you know, Naomi is in a stranger in a strange land. She's in Ruth's territory. So why would Ruth go with Naomi, her mother-in-law, I want to make sure you get this straight now. Ruth is the center of the story, but Ruth is the daughter-in-law, right? So why would Ruth leave her homeland in order to return with Naomi back to where there was a famine, back to Israel? Why would Ruth do that? She's a friend, a true friend that bears all things. And ultimately, what we see is that Ruth bears the debt because she is in Israel, courted by Boaz. What, what we'll see is that through Ruth, Naomi, Naomi returns to Israel the way an exile would return to Israel, the way you and I return to the kingdom of God. Who is it that ultimately bears the weight of the debt that we have. Isn't it amazing when you look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament as it was intended? 
You see, everything in the Old Testament in, in many ways prefigures as a type. It's called typology that is written in order to anticipate the promises of the Messiah. The covenant from the very beginning fulfilled. And so we shouldn't be surprised that when we read something like this story of the book of Ruth, you see the great theme, the great arcing theme over all of Scripture of the redemption of a people to God beginning to emerge. And so you see Ruth in in, in verse 15. It says this, referring to the son that Ruth eventually would have, that Naomi would, would count as her own, as part of her family, bringing a line, a family line, back into alignment, back into being. It says, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons. What does that mean? Well, you think of an agrarian culture, a, a culture that, in, in a society, a, a whole social structure where not only are, are you, you trying to, to build an organization called a family, but think about cheap labor, right? You need some cheap labor for your, your fields. And better to you than seven sons, you see, there's a seed of promise of this line, and, it, and again, it, it points forward. Seven is, is the number of completion, of fulfillment. Seven should trigger in your mind when you're reading, especially in the Old Testament, there's something freighted there. There's something loaded with numbers. And number seven, right? Six-day creation on the seventh day, God fulfilled. He sat down. It was complete. It was very good. This is a number of restoration. It's looking forward again to the line of David, the house of David, the son of David. And so here it is, love bearing all things in order to tell a story of redemption. Second love, the kind of love that never fails, It's not just the love that bears all things, but it's the love that believes all things. Believes all things so that we're focused on the person and not the performance. Love that that bears all things, let's look back again, reflect one more time. Love that bears all things focuses on the person and not the circumstances. Love that believes all things focuses on the person and not the performance. You ever have somebody in your life where, you know, the chips are down, and yet they believe in you? It's powerful. Someone who speaks into your life that they believe in you. Not that you you can do it, but they believe in you. Whether you, you pass or fail, they believe in you. Whether things are going well or going down, they believe in you. Whether you're entering a season of difficulty or a season of triumph, they believe. So powerful. So powerful. Because because that's the kind of love that focuses on the person 
and not on the performance. I remember this, watching this, this movie. I'm not going to tell you the, this is sort of a, a political comparison, so I'm going to leave the politics out of it so it won't be distracted to you. But, but here is, is the depiction of a president in this story, in this movie, and he's standing under the portrait of another president. So here's one president living and another president who is deceased. And he's wrestling with his own demons. And he looks at this portrait of this deceased president and he says, I look out at the people and I see what they are. You looked out at them and you saw what they could be. I look at them and I see what they are. You look at them and you see what they could be. I see when, when, when Ruth goes back with Naomi to Israel and she meets Boaz, Boaz doesn't see someone down on her luck. He sees potential. Boaz is what's called a goel in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. It's called a goel. And the term is kinsman redeemer. Now, let me explain what this all means because Boaz really is very meaningful in all of this. And what you're going to see is a picture of Christ emerging again and again. You see, in, in, Levit- in Leviticus 25, there is this, this um, social structure set up for Israel as Joshua is taking them across the Jordan and they're settling the land, there are some rules that are set up that over generations, there will be equity, there will be periods of, of, of reorganization and redistribution. And so every 50 years, there's the idea of this year of jubilee, and that's seven times seven, and in the 50th year, after 49 years, in the 50th year, Land is supposed to return to its original tribe of the 12 tribes. It's supposed to return to the original families. You see, the Lord understood that that our collaborative nature also has a dark side. It can become competitive. And so God wanted Israel to represent the best, the ideal. And so uh, every 50 years, there was to be this redistribution of the land. That's, that, that really works on you, doesn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm a capitalist too. I know you're thinking about that. I, I, it, it's, it's, it's very interesting to think about what the ideals are for human community. But, but short of the 50th year of Jubilee, there is another provision, and that, that is what Boaz represents, this goel, this idea of being a kinsman redeemer. And, and since Naomi and her family had lost everything, there is this provision in Leviticus 25 that says, it, short of the, the year of Jubilee, if there's someone in your family, a kinsman, who's willing to take on the debt you can have your land restored to you. And that's what's happening. You see, Ruth goes out, you see earlier in the story, Ruth goes out in order to glean. That is, she goes to the edges of the fields because that was another provision in order to, to, uh, to provide for people who are wandering or poor. You weren't supposed to harvest all the way to the edge of your field. And so Ruth goes out to glean. They've, they've, Naomi and Ruth have gone back to Israel and, and, and there they have nothing. They're poor. And she goes to glean at Boaz's 
field and he looks at her and she's a stranger and she is a Moabitess and they're, they're, he understands that she, she is not an Israelite and yet he understands that she is estranged from Israel and yet he understands that she's not of the house, that, house of Israel and yet he reaches out to her and, and he brings her and he says, harvest in the fields, don't just glean around the outside. And not only that, Ruth, Ruth goes back and, and presents this great abundance to, to, uh, to Naomi and she realizes this is more than gleaning, this is somebody, and she tells him the story and she says, this is our Goel, our kinsman redeemer. And Ruth goes back to him and she, and, and she lies down at his feet and takes his garment, outer garments, and puts it over her and that, that, is, an, that is emblematic of marriage, she's saying, marry me, marry me. Where else do we see that? Where else do we see this, this kind of imagery of a garment covering you and redeeming you? Let me read to you from a hymn, a famous hymn called Amazing Love. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. You see, what's happening with, with the kinsman redeemer of Boaz as, as he courts and marries Ruth is not only does he take on the debt, but all of the wealth, all of Boaz's wealth is transferred to her account. She now shares in the fullness of Israel and of the house of God. She is not only debt-free, but she is brought in to the riches of this amazing love. You say, well, okay, so this is, this is a love that looks at the person and not the performance it's a love that sees potential. I, I see that. I see the story. But, but Tim, do you, do you ever give up on somebody? I mean, what if you, you, you keep going back and, and it's like Lucy and the football, right? And you charge, you know, Lucy and the football and, and, and Charlie Brown, and he thinks he's going he's gonna to kick that football this time. And, and every time Charlie Brown goes to kick that football, Lucy pulls that football out of the way and he swings and he misses and he ends it up on his, his derriere, right? That's French for behind, right? So, so are we ever to give up on somebody if we charge at it again and again and again and we miss? And I think the answer is that we're called to be in the kind of community of persevering love. Of love that sees the potential again and again and again despite the circumstances. And so I think the answer is no. I think where there is life, there is hope. I think you never give up on somebody, ever. Now, you may give up on your approach, right? So Charlie Brown may give up on just the direct approach of kicking the football. He may walk up and say, let go of that football, it's my turn again. And whatever it is, I mean, you may give up on your approach, but you never give up on the person. Because where there is life, there is hope. 
The kind of love that never fails is the kind of love that bears all things, believes all things. Next week is hope, so we're going to skip that one. Endures all things. Why? Because when we commit to enduring love, then we're focused on the person and not the benefits. The person and not the benefits. Not the debts, not the performance, and now, not the benefits. There are benefits of, of, of knowing, of having friends. You know, a lot of times we have these friendships of utility and, and, and we don't develop the rich and deep and enduring kinds of friendships to which we're called. And that have a ripple effect when people see us living this way. Now, people are watching you. They know, they know the nature of, of your love and your commitments. And they probably know and may find out that you're part of this fellowship of faith. What kind of love are you speaking into your sphere of influence? What kind of ripple effect are you having? Are you an enduring love kind of person? I remember back in college, uh, I was developing a really good friend. And, um, and I remember he did something that just absolutely ticked me off. And I remember thinking, you know, it really does come down to this. I can just keep trading them out or I can forgive them. Those are our options. And sometimes we don't like our options. But I, I think, in part, the purpose of our learning this kind of love and learning this kind of forgiveness is so that we can learn to relate to the person and not just the benefits of knowing that person. So that your love and your motive and the way that you relate is directed honestly and in a clarifying, filtered way, not with some personal agenda, but just at the person themselves. This is exactly what Ruth is faced with as she goes to Israel and is dealing with all of the difficulties of Naomi's life, the poverty of it. Back in Moab, she would have had stronger prospects. She gave all of that up. And she persevered in love. She persevered in relationship. And what happens here is that God clarifies, filters out, takes the chaff, blows it away through the difficulties of enduring, through the difficulties of persevering in relationship, sometimes even through forgiveness, and clarifies the relationship itself is what matters. You see, this is the kind of relationship that God enjoys, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if we're to relate to him well, then we need to learn it here. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah hears this word. He says, if you have run with men and failed, how will you run and compete with horses? You see, I think we're being called into a kingdom that's coming where we need the strongest kind of love. We need the kind of love that never fails. And God is in the business of training us for heaven, in the business of training us even now to demonstrate the kind of community that bears all things, believes all things, 
and endures all things. You say, well, where am I supposed to do that? Is it just in the privacy of my own home? Actually, not. In the fall, we are going to be launching small groups. And it is my personal goal that everyone at First Presbyterian Church would be in one. It doesn't mean that you're going to, we're going to have opportunity for everyone to jump into a small group in the fall. But that's where we're starting. And we're going to begin to define increasingly the kind of, of relating to one another that I've laid out for you this morning in the way that we even structure how the church functions. And so uh, Sunday school classes are taking on uh, the idea of, of, of being caring communities just as you see them already doing. And so small groups are being developed and leaders are being trained even throughout this year to launch in the fall to create time and space for you to intentionally relate to your peers to try this kind of bearing, believing, and enduring. Who is it? Who is it that was ultimately the one who bore all things for us, who saw the potential in your life despite all of the deficits, who endured even the cross that you may have life? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us that never fails. We thank you for the ways you demonstrated it to us. But more than that, more than that, God, we thank you that you've given us the power to relate to you in a way that is clarifying, life-changing, hopeful, redemptive. Let that spill out into our life together into our families, into our classes here, into our workplaces, into our whole sphere of influence. May there be a ripple effect in the ways that we invest in relationship. In Jesus' name, amen.